0: For the first eight years of my life, I was a we. My world and David's world were the same. I didn't foresee the change would come. I didn't know the twins eventually led their own lives. We were always referred to as the twins. Our thoughts commingled in our heads before a word was uttered and we spoke the same words together. Only one of us needed to speak. We're tired now. We want something to drink. Can we play outside? So when David began to have thoughts I had no access to, to dream of things I'd never dream of, and to travel to unknown places to receive teachings I'd never learn I wasn't ready. As we grew up, I more or less learned how to say I, but not without moments of utter failure, when I felt like an unwhole person, a half of something. Still, I did have my own existence, a woman who was born a twin, but lived alone." This is G.P. Gottlieb, host of New Books and Literature for the New Books Network, and today I'm speaking with author Rachel Stolzman-Gullo, author of The Sign for Drowning, about her new novel, Practice Dying, the winner of several honors and awards. Rachel received her MFA in creative writing from Sarah Lawrence College and currently works in public health, in HIV prevention and drug user health. She lives in Brooklyn with her husband and two young sons. Let's get to it. Hi, Rachel. Thanks for joining me today. Hi, Khalid. It's such a pleasure. So let's start with you telling us all how you came to write this book.
1: It, it was written, uh, it was conceived of over many years and, and also written over a number of years. And I actually, I had a job working with people with mental illness. And there was one young man in particular who was mentally ill and also a very inspiring Buddhist. And I I thought of him as somebody who was spiritually enlightened more than the rest of us. But I also saw that he was a really dysfunctional person in terms of daily living. And um, when I first started imagining this book, he was sort of at the center. But I realized I wanted to turn him into two characters and um, and these two sides of him to represent to be broken into two different people because in fiction you want conflict and P- and characters who can bump against each other um but i started thinking of the um pathology and enlightenment as a as a spectrum and that you couldn't have one without the other are you a, are you a meditator are you a buddhist also I'm not a Buddhist. I, um I'm not a practicing Buddhist. Um, but I feel like Buddhism is something that I've tried for many years not to pick up. <laughs> and uh that every time I come close to it or meet someone who I'm very drawn to, I um I have frequently found out that people who really um touch me and um make sense to me are often Buddhist. And um and uh, Many of its practices and philosophies I, um, I use and I practice, but I, I've never had a teacher. And without a teacher, you can't be a practicing Buddhist.
0: So how did you come up with this title, Practice Um uh,
1: That's a funny question. Um, I, I thought I made it up. And to me, it meant a certain thing that was happening in my, within my plot. Um, and to me, it meant a couple of things, but it meant, um, practicing for your, for your own death so that you're ready. But it also meant, um, learning that, that all of us go through losses in life that really force you to change. Like the, the biggest losses that we go through force us to change and that that change is, um, is a bit of a rebirth for the person who went through the loss. Um, And so to me, when I came up with that title, I was really, really happy with it. And then one day I was like, you know what? I better Google that phrase and and see if it it already exists. And yes, it does. (laughs) Um, And it turns out that um, it's a phrase that Plato said on his deathbed. And apparently when he was asked on his deathbed, what has your life taught you? He said, practice dying. And, um, and it also is a phrase in Buddhism, Mm -hmm. which means, um, I very, it's very aligned with what I thought it would mean, like accepting loss, accepting, uh, the ephemeral qualities of life and, um, you know, being, have practicing Mm non-attachment.
0: So, who are your main characters introduce us to them and how were they named
1: okay um so like i said my main characters were um fictional characters that came to me from taking a real life person and turning him into two people and um so i made them twins and i i wanted them to be male and female so they're fraternal twins and one of I wanted one of them to to by outwardly appearance have pathologies. Um, I wanted her to be dysfunctional, um, and so that's uh, one of the twins is Jamila, and I wanted her brother to by outward appearances be enlightened, um, and that's David. And David, um, from a very young age, the age of eight, um, sort of discovered his spiritual calling. He. Um, he heard of the Dalai Lama, and he was drawn to go hear him speak, and he snuck out of his home in Manhattan and went to hear the Dalai Lama speak. And he felt um, some sparks in him, like that this was something he sort of knew, but had never been taught. Um, and when I was writing it, my, um, the people in my writing group who were reading it They were like, but is he really enlightened? Like, do you want him to really be enlightened? And I was like, I think I really do. I think I really do want him to be enlightened. So that's David and Jamila. And, um, one of them is a Hebrew name, David. And one of them is an Arabic name, Jamila. And I wanted, I was just making them opposing forces in every way. And, um, and then I decided to write a scene where Jamila's asked about their two names and she explains it, that her parents were so devoted to uh, helping to make peace in the Middle East that they gave their children one a Hebrew name and one an Arabic name. Mm-hmm. That was really nice. Um, the part about eight-year-old David sneaking out of the house and taking himself
0: in Manhattan to a lecture and then sitting through lecture that resonated with him at the age of eight was really, really moving. And what was most shocking is that then he got a private audience with the Dalai Lama. How'd you come up with that?
1: I just try, I just tried to imagine how that could unfold. And, um, and I, the Dalai Lama in in my novel is a fictionalized character um, but I'm, the character is meant to be our current, the 14th Dalai Lama, um, the Dalai Lama who the whole world knows. Um, but I completely fictionalized him for for the sake of the novel, and um, I tried to imagine that he, that David was special enough that um, that David approached the Dalai Lama at, at the end of this lecture. And that the Dalai Lama, at one glance, could see that he should give David some time, some of his time. And then he sort of, as you read, he sort of questions David to to sort of like to, to test out, you know, who is this kid and... And what does he know, and what does he think he knows? And then David takes on the concern about
0: the China China's occupation of Tibet, and the whole world of the Dalai Lama. Uh, why is he so concerned? Why did he make that his world?
1: Well, I think that I think it's because of his relationship with the Dalai Lama. Um, not not every Buddhist. Um, is a follower of the Dalai Lama or of Tibetan Buddhism. Um, but if you are as David is, um, those, this would be your utmost concern. And, um, the, uh, the 14th Dalai Lama lives in exile. Um, since he was a teenager, he was forced out of Tibet, um, for his own safety and he moved to Dharamsala, India. And in Dharamsala, India, he created Tibet in exile. And um, so Tibetan Buddhists and um, all kinds of followers of the Dalai Lama get to Dharamsala, where they are free, which is in the Himalayan mountains across from Tibet. Um, they go there to practice Tibetan Buddhism in in freedom. And even more importantly, to revere and celebrate the Dalai Lama as a person. Um, and so that was all David's... Um, Tradition, and um, and like the Dalai Lama himself, he was pained and and concerned about Tibet, about Tibetans, um, and as you see, about halfway through the book, about the trend of self-immolation in Tibet.
0: Have you considered sending a copy of the book to the Dalai Lama?
1: I have. I've fantasized and dreamed of like, what if I could get this into his hands? I did send a copy. I've been a a supporter for many years of the um, Center for Tibetan Buddhism. And I sent a copy to the president. Um, I didn't get a response.
0: (laughs) So So now let's talk about the other twin, Jamila, called Jimmy. She has uh, also a complex life and career
1: so she is meant to represent the pathology and um in all hum you know in the the spectrum between pathology and enlightenment and when i say meant to um i think the concept of for the book the thematic concept was that um people who appear to be um ill and pathologized but particularly mentally um that if you look inside you will find enlightenment in some ways, and you, you will find many gifts. And people who are gifted or enlightened or are genius, um, if you look inside, you will also find many dysfunctions. And uh, so that, that's kind of how this story goes plot-wise, that you find out each of them are, that they're more alike than, than you would have thought in the opening. And in the opening, they're estranged from each other. Um I forgot your original question Galit. <laughs>
0: um
1: well that's okay. We're talking Oh, about Jamila. Yeah. Yes. Um, I think I guess I answered it in part. It yeah. was, you know, it it takes so many drafts to make a novel work. And um in some of my early drafts Jamila had no career. And I just, you know, there's so much to do. I I didn't I didn't I didn't give her a, a career. And um when I then realized she needed a career. Um, I gave her a career very close to my heart, some, some a type of work I've done similar things to, um, which was working with pregnant teenagers in, in Brooklyn, New York. And I made that her career and something she felt very passionate about. And that she was, so she was somebody who was hurting herself, literally. She had like cutting and self, self-harm tendencies but she was somebody who devoted her life to to helping other young women.
0: Yeah. And then she also has a spiritual kind of experience as a child, completely different than the one David has, but hers has something to do with a wolf. Could you talk about the wolf
1: as a character? Yeah. (laughs) Thank you for calling the wolf a character. Um, So that's sort of her, her art alter ego. And she comes up. So because she was self harming as a child, she ended up in therapy as a child. And the very first time she saw the wolf, um, it was, it was something that buoyed her and made her feel special and made her feel chosen because this wolf, she imagined this wolf coming out of the woods into, into her yard and choosing her as it's human. Um, and the way it's written it's the lines between fiction and fantasy are very blurred in that scene so that i think the reader's not sure if a real wolf came out of the woods or not but um it's simultaneous to jamila hurting herself in a serious way for the first time she sees the wolf and does something very dangerous and um and that continues through her life that when she's going to do something very dangerous to herself that wolf appears and um yet she sees that wolf as a friend and as a um as a presence that that makes her special um and i think that that might be true for a lot of people who get caught up in self-harm or compulsive behavior that um there's something about it that that also makes them feel unique and um and that's part of why it's hard to resist.
0: So then she goes through a traumatic time. And instead of calling David, who is somewhere in uh across the ocean, somewhere in mm-hmm. I guess in Dharamsala. Mm-hmm. So instead of calling him because she's suffering, she calls him because she feels like he's suffering. That was really interesting.
1: Um, right? yes, um- Yes and no. I um unless I'm forgetting each each beat along the way, he he reaches out to her after This is when no, this is when she calls to say come home. She
0: has a twin's intuition yes. and she calls.
1: She does. Um she does have a Yes, he is missing. He was he had been sent the Dalai Lama had sent him from Dharamsala to Tibet. Um and he didn't really understand why he had been sent to Tibet. And, um, much later in the novel, um, we discover why he had been sent to Tibet, but, um, he's sent to Tibet, he is miserable there and he feels he's been exiled by the Dalai Lama and sent someplace where the Dalai Lama couldn't, could not go himself. And, um, and David starts sort of plummeting mentally and, um, and spiritually because he's supposed to see a teacher there. Um, I'm not giving any spoilers. This happens in chapter two, Uh, but he's supposed to, um, he's been assigned to a new teacher in Tibet and he doesn't go to the monastery and he doesn't report to the teacher, um, which is a very extreme um, uh, faux pas, if you will. And, uh, and Jamila and Jamila and her mother are worried Mm -hmm. about David and Jamila I won't tell her mother this, but she thinks that something is very wrong. She pretends that she's not worried um and then in actually David calls her and then she says to david i i am in the um i am in trouble would you come home so she does ask him to come home um but he's they are both in trouble at that moment so without giving anything
0: away, I'd like to know is Saving or not being able to save people from death, an important theme in your book.
1: Oh, yes, it is. (laughs) But I wouldn't say from death. I would say from suffering. Ah, from suffering. Yes. So David has taken the vow of a bodhisattva um, when he was a teenager. He did that. And that's not something that's um, like... um, but this privilege that, that not many people could accomplish or, or reach that level, um, any of us are free to take the vow of a bodhisattva. Um, I don't think you would do it unless you were practicing Buddhism and learning about it. But um, basically, a, a bodhisattva is someone who will not only strive to end their own suffering, but will strive to end the suffering of those around them everywhere. Um, and so that's a beautiful thing to do to be a bodhisattva. And David um, unquestioningly took that vow, um, but David has a very fatal flaw in that it's he doesn't always see the suffering around him. And so he he's um, he's failing at that. Um, and I think I've tried to make it. I tried to show that that there are people who do that everywhere in every corner. Of the world, whether they've taken that vow or not, there are people that um, do small and large things to, to help those who are suffering around them.
0: That's why it was so interesting when David arrives. Jamila has just come back from the hospital, and he's stinging because a fellow monk told him that he doesn't always see suffering, he's he's really hurt by that. But then it's not clear if he really sees his own sister's suffering does
1: he? Yes. No, he does not. And that's one of his journeys, um, through this novel. Um, and yes, his, um, one of his closest friends who's 10 years older and has been, um, 10 years wiser than him, um, says to him, uh, you know, in a flippant passing casual way, you're not seeing suffering. And you know, in today's language, you would say like, you're not woke. And, um, and David is very stung by that, but he can't snap his fingers and start to see. And, um, and Jamila is one, maybe the hardest person for him to see. Um, Just like I, um, in my experience, I think, you know, the people you love the most and who are closest to you um, can be the hardest people to truly see. Mm hmm. And that is his problem. Yeah. So
0: um what can you tell us about the twins' relationship with their grandmother? She's an important character.
1: Yeah. And I um I break out in a smile when anyone mentions the character of their grandma, um, because I created her whole cloth from my real grandma. And um oh. yeah, and my um my grandma and I were incredibly close. We were like for a period of time, the last 10 years of her life, I, I feel like we were best friends. And uh, when she died, she was 90 and I was 30. And uh, we were having a renaissance to our relationship because I had moved back to New York City where she lived. And we were spending a lot of time together. And, um, and she, we, we just had an incredibly strong connection and the character in the book is um is a I like to say she's a non fictionalized version of my grandma. Um, oh, yeah, I like. And it. Uh, she took um, both of the twins got a lot of comfort from her. They did.
0: What about the parents?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, the, um, I think there was a ton of love and affection there too. Uh, so the grandma is the mother's mother, and. Um, but there was something that that I say in the book um, that some, something skipped a generation to connect the grandma to the granddaughter. It's like that they were alike um, and, as people; they were similar as people. Whereas the love and affection was absolutely there with the with the daughter slash mother in the middle, but um, but she had a different personality. Right now, I'm wondering if you uh, based the parents on anybody in real life. Um, they're kind of a collage of, um, some, some of my parents, some of my aunt and uncle, um, Mm. some fiction. So there, um, some photographs, like uh, just old family photographs where I was like, I think that this, you know, that photo of my mom in that burgundy sweater is sort of how I pictured the mother in this novel. But also, you know, because the grandmother really was my grandma, um, some of, some of the links between those two characters are also based on on my real life mother and grandmother. I hope they liked the book, your folks. <laughs> okay. Well, my my grandma had already has you know died long before the book was written, even, um, and that was part of the pleasure of putting her in it was I you know I, sp- I felt like having all this connection to her mm-hmm. while I was writing. I thought you know I haven't. This is my second novel, and uh, I never put. It's funny, I, like, I did this thing about putting someone from my life in, in the book. I, I've, I haven't done that in the past and I, I very much doubt I'll do it in the future. I was like, eh, I think we all get one pass to do this. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, what was the most difficult part of the book for you to write?
1: Um, plot is always hard, always to, to get enough, um, enough drama, enough tension to keep the tension going, um, from chapter to chapter. Um, so the ordering of the book, um, and there was some, there were, there were probably five or probably four or five really significant drafts of this novel where, you know, major changes happened. It moved to a decade um, in time. It moved. Um, I added a whole nother continent. Like I think the first draft, um, Dharamsala was mentioned, but we don't go to Dharamsala. Um, By the final draft, um, we spend a lot of time in Dharamsala, um, and we spend a lot of time in Tibet. And so the novel really had to grow, and that was hard. And um, something that became very key for me about the story was self-immolation and a character who's a survivor of self-immolation. And that didn't come about until the, the final. Draft. Oh, and that
0: was so significant. That was.
1: Really yes. Important. And it, so, and, you know, yes, it's almost like, well, what, how did this novel stand up before that? And I think it probably didn't. And then it did. All right. <laughs> so, Rachel, what what are you working on next? Um, I'm, wor- I'm working on another novel. I've just recently finished my first draft. But as I've just explained, that, that doesn't mean I'm done. <laughs> right. Um, and it's a story about uh, a single father who has a severely disabled daughter. And, um, and he's also a skyscraper engineer. And so he, um, he has trouble reconciling imperfection any- in anything. And he, um, he's going to grow a lot. sounds good Um, I'll look forward to seeing it when it comes out thank you so much thank you so much for joining me today on the new books network and it's been a pleasure the pleasure is all mine thank you so much
0: and thank you for listening again this is GP Gottlieb and I've been talking to Rachel Stolzman-Gullo about her book practice dying if you enjoyed today's podcast and would like to discuss it further with me and other New Books Network listeners? Please join us on Shuffle. Shuffle's an ad free, invite only network focused on the creativity community. As New Book Network listeners, you can get special access to conversations with a dynamic community of writers and literary enthusiasts. Sign up by going to www.shuffle.do forward slash nbn forward slash join.